Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Romans 2, 17. We'll work all the way through verse 24 this morning. Um, good morning. My name is Matt Winquist. I'm one of the elders and the discipleship pastor here on staff at Wildwood Church. Glad you're here. And um, normally, you know, norm, we're used to having Pastor Brian, our lead pastor, preaching on Sunday mornings. However, to, today he's actually in, in Kenya. Um, and he, along with uh, Pastor Andy, our missions pastor, and one of our elders, Brian Siwi, and Aaron Salto, one of our members. Um, I had the, I'm, I'm a little sad that I didn't get to go because I've been there. I've been where they are, and it was an amazing experience. Got to preach the gospel. A lot of people got saved. Uh, one of, uh, a favorite memory of mine from the last time that we were there uh, was at, actually at the very end of the trip during uh, a, a day that we had for rest and relaxation. Um, we, we got to go on a safari, and that was a really neat experience. Saw a lot of cool animals. But by far and away, the coolest experience that, that we had, that we saw, was we saw um, a pride of lions take down a water buffalo. Like, it's rare to see lions in general. Uh, they kind of like to hide. But um, we, actually, we actually saw, we saw that happen. And we were a, kind of a safe distance away in our vehicle. Um, I mean, really, it was, safe, it was a safe distance away. But it was sort of terrifying, frightening, awesome. I got some really good pictures. I'm not going to show them because it's kind of gruesome. Uh, but if you want to see them, I'd be happy to show them to you sometime. Um, but anyway, make a long story short, we, uh, we went back to the hotel, had, uh, had dinner, and then we went back out at night and we asked the, the guy who was uh, touring, or giving us a tour, to, uh, to drive us back past that site. This time, though, he, drove, he parked right next to the carcass. Like, I'm, I'm talking like... We could, we could hear bones crunching. We could hear, we could, we could hear the, tesh, the flesh tearing. We could, we could see flies buzzing. We could hear the sounds, the smells, all, all of that stuff. It was, it was amazing. Now, we're in this vehicle that has a, a lid that like pops up so that there's a space at the top right about here. And, and so you can look out and take pictures and stuff like that. And so while I was really excited to be like, this is awesome. I love this. This is so cool, taking pictures. But at the same time, I'm like looking at the little crank mechanisms, and I'm like, okay, like how fast can we lower this thing? Um, and I'm like, Mike Gray, you got to have your walking stick, and if one of those lions comes in here, you got to bust that thing upside the head. I mean, we, got, we had to have a plan here. I didn't want to be lulled into a false sense of security because... In two seconds, flat, one of those lines could have been in there. Uh, I was hoping they were kind of full from eating a water buffalo, but um, <laughs> we're pretty small compared to him. But anyway, there's this false sense of security. It would be foolish to think that because I was inside of a vehicle that one of those lions couldn't attack us. In our passage today, uh, it is talking about just that. It's talking about a false sense of security. You can actually hear that in my voice. Huh? I might need that later. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> um, there is a false sense of security that Paul is talking about in our passage. And I, and I want us to, well, let's read the passage, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about uh, very quickly. Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, 
And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All right, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, would guide us to know your truth, that you would prepare our hearts to hear it, receive it, believe it, understand it, and obey it today. And uh, that, we would, that we would listen to you, that we wouldn't be among those who, who blaspheme your name because we hear your word, uh, claim you as our own, and go out and do um, everything against your word. And I pray that you would change our hearts, O oh God, so that we can, in fact, do what the passage says today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we read, as we read through the passage, you can see there's a lot of stuff in there at, at the very beginning that, that, that sounds like good stuff, thing that you, things that we, you should do that you would think that the Bible teaches we actually should do. And yet, at the very end of the passage, it says, you, you who boast in, in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, and, and this, this phrase is key, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Uh, and first of all, we need to unpack the word blaspheme, like we use it in church, it, it comes up because it's in the Bible a bunch of times. Uh, but what is blasphemy? It's, blasphemy is important to understand because it's key to this passage. Blasphemy is anything that damages the reputation of God in any way. Any time that, that God's name is maligned, any time anytime we make him look bad by our actions, by our words, um, by our attitudes, that is, is blasphemy. And it's important to understand that because in the law of Moses, in the Old Testament, what is the punishment for blasphemy? It's death. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just a, a quick death. It's like stone them... The Bible says it over and over again. Stone them to death until they are dead. Like, it's like, it's this redundant thing. Like, they were supposed to be really dead and you're supposed to stone them. That's how serious blasphemy is. And here Paul is using this term in the, in the, in the New Testament and when he's addressing these Jews. And so, in order to understand kind of the heart behind what is going on here in this passage. I want to take you to a passage in Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 22 to 27. And, and having an understanding and a background of this passage will help us unpack the rest of it, I think. Um, verse 22 of Ezekiel 36 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. All right? The, 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 where, where Paul says the name, of blas, uh, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, this is one of the Old Testament passages where that's taken from. Uh, there's another one in Isaiah as well. Um, which you have profaned among the nations to, to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my... Oh, let me back up. Which you profaned among the nations which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. All right, and that's, we'll stop at this point for a second here, and, we'll, and, and 
what is the expect, like, God is saying, you have blasphemed my name among the nations, which we know, or profaned my name among the nations, same thing as blasphemy, which we know from the Old Testament law is deserving of death, being stoned to death. And so what, and, and, and God is saying, I'm going to vindicate my name. What's the expected response that we're, we're thinking that we're going to hear next? Like, he's just going to level the place, right? Destruction, wrath, anger. Look what happens next. Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a God. Of, people say that God is a God of anger and wrath in the Old Testament, a God of mercy in the New Testament. False. God is always a God of mercy and grace. And, and even in the Old Testament, and even when his people Israel were dirty, rotten sinners, he still said, and they were profaning his name, deserving death, he still had grace and mercy on them. With that context in mind, uh, we're going we're to go into our passage now, starting in verse 17. And we're just going to kind of take it phrase by phrase, and we're going to unpack each one of them. We're going to ask, what does it mean? What is he talking about? We're going to ask, is it wrong? Is it wrong? Because he's saying all these things. There's a possible way to blaspheme God's name, God's name while doing the things in this passage that sound good. But is it wrong? And if it's not wrong, what makes it blasphemy? All right? So verse 17, uh, it says, but if you call yourself a Jew, all right, what is it? Is it wrong to call yourself a Jew? If not, what's the heart behind what Paul is saying? Uh, over time, Israelites, the people of Israel, uh, the descendants of Abraham, became known as Jews. This is because they, over time, um, Judea, the place where David, or Judah, the place where David was from, uh, became to be, all Israelites became referred to as people from Judah. In other words, so short for that was Jew. And in fact, it became, um, it sort of became this thing where, um, and when Paul uses it, uses the term, he uses the term to distinguish between Jew and non-Jew, Jew and Gentile. He does it, he's already done it a bunch of times in Romans, uh, several times in Romans. He's going to continue to do it throughout the book of Romans. He does it all over in Galatians. Uh, there's a number of times that he does that. The, the, the name Jew became a source of pride for the Jewish people, especially as it related to, and when it was connected to um, the, the idea that uh, there was a source of pride when it was connected with a notion of being God's chosen people. And it, it was, it, was it wrong for them to have this, this pride in being God's people? Was there any basis for that pride at all? Uh, that question is answered in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 2 and 3. This, is, this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the nation of Israel. Uh, God has met Abraham, who, by the way, was an idolater. Uh, his family, he came from a family of idolaters. And this is what God says to him uh, in, in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. All right, so the people of Israel realized that this promise is about them. 
And so when they're, when they're Jews, you know, and when, they, when we say pride in the Jew and being called a Jew, they would, it was not uncommon in that day um, to like sign your name on a document or address yourself as like Matt Winquist, Jew, right? It would kind of be like Matt Winquist, USA, or Matt Winquist, America. Um, they were proud, they were proud of their heritage. And, um, and so um, there's a source of pride and the notion of being connected with God's chosen people. What was the heart behind that? Um, they actually have basis in the scripture. The scripture in Genesis tells them, you are my chosen people. Like, there's a real reality. There's a real truth behind that. that they, and so what's wrong with it? What is the, what is the problem? If we read on in the problem, the problem becomes how they view themselves. They are God's chosen people, and nobody else is. Nobody else gets to be God's chosen people. Reading on, finishing God's promise here, and it says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so this pride of, of being God's people goes too far when they think it's only for them. All of God's people, all the people of the earth are going to be blessed through this promise. Moving on, relying on the law. If you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law, is it, is it bad to rely on the law? Uh, uh, is the law bad? Romans chapter 7, verse 12 makes it very clear that the law is not bad. Uh, it says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Psalm 119, over and over and over again, repeatedly for a very long time, says the law is perfect, it revives the soul, it's, it's awesome, it's amazing. All these beautiful words that, it, that describe the law of God. Um, and, and so the Bible itself tells us the law is good and it should be obeyed. And it is right because it is God's word. Now, the word translated rely upon in, in the Greek has connotations of putting one's hope in, um, of, of resting in it. And so we can rely upon the law in one sense, in one sense only, and that is we can rely upon the law to communicate exactly how God wants us to live our lives. That is how we rely upon the law. We should not, and this is Paul's point in this passage, we cannot rely upon the law to save us from our sins. We have a sin problem. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, God, it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. All right, so we needed, we needed God to rescue us from our sin. Um, and this gets back to that promise in Ezekiel. I'm going to, I'm going to change your heart. We needed God to act. Verse, uh, Romans 8, verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We were born in a state that literally can't submit to God's law. Even if we read it, even if in some sense we understand it, we are not capable of fully obeying God's law. And so this... Uh, the kind of the idea behind what Paul is saying here, there's, there's some questions that I, I want to posit to you as we go along here. There's a question for the person attempting to earn his or her salvation, because uh, this is what, what Paul is getting at by this. You're, you're trying to earn your favor with God. Here's a question that he's asking in, in so many words. How perfectly 
do you have to keep God's law in order for him to accept you? How, how well do you have to obey God in order for him to, to vindicate you or think that you are just? And, and the answer to that question resoundingly all throughout Scripture is you have to keep it perfectly. You can never in your life ever, ever mess up. You have to keep it perfectly in order for God to declare you righteous by your own works. And, and that's a, a scary thought for us because messing up even once deserves God's wrath eternally. Here's another question. Here's a, con- a question for the sincerely religious because you, you could also be of the mindset, well, I'm just like, I see God's law, but I'm just going to sincerely try and do the best that I can. I'm really sincere. Um, I've been sincere, 100% perfectly, perfectly sincere all my life. Uh, I don't really care exactly what God's law says, but I'm sincere about it, right? How sincere do you need to be in your practice of religion for God to accept you? Better yet, is there any amount of sincereness that will trigger God's acceptance of you and justification of your sin? And the answer to those questions is obviously no. God is not He does not care about your sincereness. He doesn't care how sincerely you obey his law or how sincerely you're trying to be a good person apart from his law. Um, There is no amount of sincereness that will help. Verse 17, what does it mean to boast in God? And is it wrong to boast in God? It kind of sounds like, I mean, at least we're not boasting in ourselves, we're boasting in in God, right? uh, Romans chapter 5 verse 11 answers this question. It is a good thing. It says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now re- receive reconciliation. Uh, the, the word, this is the ESV as well, um, and it says we also rejoice in God. It's the same Greek word in the background. I'm not exactly sure why they translated it, boast in one place and rejoice in the other. I think it should be boast in both places. Um, and and it, so it says, we also boast in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a proper time to boast in God, and that's because of his son Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and his finished work on the cross for our sins. That's the appropriate place for boasting. The Old Testament, in in Jeremiah 9.24, and it's quoted a couple places in the New Testament in Paul's letters, it says, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. And so where, where does our boasting come from? It comes from not from uh, introspective. It doesn't come from ourselves. There is nothing that we have to boast for. Whenever we're boasting, it has to do only with God and who he is and the fact that God is love and he's working love through us and righteousness through us and, pract- and that he is the one that practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. That is the source of our boasting. Verse, uh, verse 18, uh, we're going to deal with the next two phrases, know his will and approve what is excellent together because they're, they're a lot the same and a lot, uh, and a lot of the verses that I have um, use that language together and so I want you to see that. What is, uh, knowing his will is pretty easy to define, right? Like you know, you know what God thinks, you know what God wants and, uh, for your life based on his word. Approve what is excellent. What does that mean? Uh, approving what is excellent has this, the idea of the ability to test the difference between what is excellent and what is not, what is good and what is bad, what is, what is right, what is wrong, righteous, unrighteous. So approve what is excellent. What does the Bible say about that? 
Actually, later in Romans chapter 12, it, it tells us that we should be able to do that. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's that same language there at the end, that, we, that it is a good thing. Paul says that we're supposed to be able to do it, that we're supposed to be able to test and approve what God's will is, his perfect will. How is it, though, that the verse says that we get there? It's by the renewal of your mind. How is your mind renewed? It is only through the Holy Spirit that, that Jesus comes into your life. He changes you uh, through the, the power of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. We believe that. And, and, and Jesus comes into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, and he starts changing us. He starts renewing our minds. That's a continual process for the rest of our lives. And it's only because of what he does. Philippians 1, 10 through 11 literally uses the exact same phrase as, as we have in, in verse 18. Um, it says, so that you may approve what is excellent. Right? So it's something that we're supposed to do. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through what? Jesus Christ. Um, it comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So it comes through Jesus Christ, and its purpose is for the glory and the praise of God. It's not our own glory, and it doesn't come from us. It comes through Jesus for his glory. Um, very important to understand. And so how is it that, that that work even starts in our hearts so that we can be for the praise of his glory? Just a few verses earlier in Philippians 1.6, it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. All right, so God begins the work in you through the person of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. He's the one that's continuing the work, and he's the one that's going to bring it to completion. It's all him. It's none of you. It's none of us. And so there's no, there's no place for boasting in here. And so there's this, there's this question for uh, the, the average self-professed Christian. There's a, there's a lot of average self-professed Christians here at Wildwood, even. And here's a, here's a question for you. How noncommittal can you be to learning God's will without blaspheming the name of God? That's a, that's a heavy question. How noncommittal can you be to learning God's word or God's will without blaspheming the name of God? Um, here's a question, uh, and here's a question for the Reformed theologian. I'm going to I'm going to give a little practical example of both of these here, um, but I, I want you to see both of them. Here's a question for the Reformed theologian. We consider ourselves Reformed here, and there, there's some of us that, that may have um, some background in theology. How perfectly correct does your, th your theology have to be in order for God to accept you? How perfectly correct does it have to be? Does it have to be John Piper good or John MacArthur good or Brian Smith good or is there, is there another level somewhere lower that it has to be in order for God to accept you? All right. Here's the thing. Um, it's, it's all about the heart, right? Because you can be on the one end 
Uh, I'll be honest with you, as the discipleship pastor, I'm concerned about um, the discipleship program at our church. And I see our adult Bible fellowships on Sunday morning. We've got three of them, and there's hardly anybody in them. And they're good teachers. Well, um, I don't want to toot my own horn because I'm one of them, but um, <laughs> uh, Dave, Dave Howell and, and Al Knott are very good teachers. And um, it's worth going to their classes. They, they teach the Bible in those classes, and people don't go. Um, we're going, we have, I'm teaching the, the Gospel Project, and I'm not the only one. I've got Bob Graff down there, one of our elders teaching today. I've had other people teach it. It's a great class to be in, and it teaches us the story of redemption through the whole Bible. And, and we've paid, as a church, for 100 people to be involved in that, just to give you an idea of how many people we'd like to see in there. We'd pay for more if we had more. But we, we barely get 20 on a, on a given Sunday. And I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty. Um, we, have, we need people working in... In, in various ministries around the church on Sunday. We have, a, we have a really difficult time getting people to work in those ministries. Um, here's the thing. When, when I invite, I've invited people into my class, and I've said, hey, why don't you come to my class? And this is, uh, and if you've had this conversation with me, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty right now. I, I, want, you to, I want you to hear the heart behind it, and I'm going to get to the other side in a minute. Um, the number one thing I hear when I ask people to be involved in a class, or when I, we ask people to be involved in a ministry, is guess what? I don't want to be here for three hours on Sunday. Now, having said that, the solution is not for you to be like, okay, I feel guilty, I'm going to go to your class now, Matt. No, that is not the solution. The solution is heart check. Right? Why is it that you don't want to be here for three hours on Sunday? Why, why is it that you don't want more training in the gospel? Why is it that you don't want to serve? Um, we have hundreds of people that come in for 90 minutes and leave. Why is that, why is that, why is that the case? But there's the other side, too. I remember that question for the Reformed theologian, how pre perfectly correct does your theology have to be for God to accept you? We have people who do all the things. They come on Sunday morning, they go to an ABF, they're in a triad, they're in a connect group, they come on Wednesday night, uh, they're serving, they're doing all the things. They know their Bibles. And yet their confidence is in their knowledge and not in their Savior, Jesus Christ. Both sides of those are wrong, and both sides of those are something that Paul is hammering at right here. He's breaking down all these things that we place our trust in. There's another question for the individual. Do you really have Christ's righteousness, or do you think of yourself innately as you deserve it and earned it? And that's a heavy question that you have to wrestle with individually. And ultimately, the main question of this passage today. And so ultimately, if, if your heart doesn't want more instruction in the gospel, if your heart doesn't want to serve, why is that? Is it because you don't really have a relationship with Jesus, that you think you deserve your standing with God rather than God has given you a standing with him and you get to serve? You get to learn more about him. You want it. 
We're going to pack this a little bit more. Verse 19. You're going to see what I'm saying, I think, a, a little bit more clearly as we go to the next couple of verses. Um, I want you to notice, and you can highlight this if you're a highlighter in your Bible, highlight all the times you see the word you or yourself in this passage. Um, you is singular throughout this passage. He's been talking to large groups of people up to this point. Now he's drilling down to the individual. You, you call yourself a Jew. And by the way, just because he's talking to Jews here doesn't mean this doesn't apply to us. Uh, that was a wrestle I had at the beginning of studying this. But these same attitudes found in the Jews are found in us as well. If, and you are singular throughout this passage. And, and so you yourself is key to understanding this whole passage. What is the problem here that Paul is addressing? He's, he's saying that you yourself think that in and of yourselves, you are a guide to the blind. You are a light in the darkness. Well, what does it mean to be a guide to the blind? And is it wrong to do that? Sounds like something that, that God would want us to do. Same with light and the darkness. And we're going to handle those two things together. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, Jesus speaking about the religious leaders of his day, the people that knew God's word the best. Like they probably had much of the Old Testament memorized. And he said this to his disciples, let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. What's the point that Jesus is making? The same point that Paul is making. You cannot lead the blind if you yourself are blind. You can't, you can't lead the blind unless you can see. And how is it that we have spiritual sight? It's only through Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. That's the only way that we get it. Um, Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 says this. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. Oh, that's a, that's a powerful verse. What is, what is the Lord saying here? He's saying, I'm the one that called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand, and I will give you, as a covenant to the people, a light for the nations. In other words, you are to be a light for the nations. That is something that the Jews were supposed to do. That is something that we are supposed to do. And, and you're supposed to open the eyes of the blind. You're supposed to be a light for the nations. But how is it that that happens? Skip down to verse 16 of Isaiah 42, and it says, And I will lead, and this is God speaking still, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do, and I do not forsake them. So how is it that we are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness? It's only through the light that God is shining into our lives through the, the, through the gospel and pouring it out into all all the earth for his glory. It's very important to understand. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16 is actually a passage we covered in youth group on Wednesday night. Um, and I already had it in my sermon, but it was, it was great to hear Josh was on the same page. It says, you are the light of the world. This is Jesus speaking. You are the light of the world. In fact, that is something the Bible calls you to be. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let me ask you a question. How do good things you do give glory to your Father in heaven? It's because they're his works, not yours. They're his works. And so you need a changed heart 
and you need the light of his life in you. Jesus says, I am the light, um, and, and I'm coming into the darkness. And so you need that in order to do good works in the first place so that those good works then glorify your Father who is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 through 6 says this, and, the, and this gets to the exact, he states the, in, in, the, in our passage in Romans 2, he states the negative, you think that you yourself are a guide to the blind. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, 5 and 6, it says, for we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This theme of light and the darkness is all over the Bible, and wherever it is found, it is God who is the light, not us, not his people. It is God who is light. I had, last night, I had to cut half the verses that I had in my sermon out because it's already too long. And I only put half of them in the first place that I wanted to put in. It's, it's everywhere. Um, I encourage you to uh, do a word search and, and find out for yourself. Now, I actually had, and just so you know that your pastor, um, all of your pastors, but this one in particular, is still learning this himself. I want to tell you a little story of a couple of things that happened uh, to me this week. Um, in fact, uh, one time I messed up royally, and one time I, I did a little better, I think. Um, the first one was on Wednesday. Um, I'm preparing for my sermon. I'm in the Word. I'm excited, getting excited about it. Delilah comes into my office and says, Matt, are you busy? I'm like, well, yeah, kind of. Um, but what do you got? Well, there's this guy on line one. He wants to, he has some questions about the Bible. And I was like, okay, patch him through. I've got this. Um, he's got Bible questions. I got Bible answers. Um, <laughs> And so he, uh, well, he gets, on, he gets on the phone, and it became, to make a long story short, it became very apparent very quickly that he also had Bible answers and um, wasn't really going to ask questions. He was going to make fun of our doctrine of the Trinity and, um, and ultimately started, like, badgering me. And I started, getting, I started getting angry. And I was like, does this guy have any idea who he's talking to? Like, <laughs> I... Like he has no, um, so I start, and, and I, I literally, while he was mocking my, my intelligence, I got up and I'm like, listen, man, and I closed the door. I didn't realize I had just slammed the door in one of our elders' faces. Um, <laughs> but I was about to give it to him, and then he hung up the phone. And immediately I was like, I just did the exact opposite of what I'm going to preach on Sunday. Like, I thought that. I was this guy's salvation. I was going to give him both barrels. I was going to lay into him some, some Jesus, a Jesus whooping. And, <laughs> and I realized in that moment that I was not his salvation. And what I didn't have was a compassion for his lost soul, that that guy is dying and going to hell. On Friday, I had an opportunity to do it better. We went and did some evangelism at, um, at Blackhawk College, and there was a teacher that was there in the lobby, and um, Stephen Johnson was uh, witnessing to four, four girls sitting there. They wanted him to. They were asking him questions, and the teacher came over and started shouting and saying, this guy's a liar. These people are liars. They shouldn't even be here, and all this stuff. And so it was, it was crazy. 
I tried going back over myself and, and trying to say, hey, we didn't mean to make you upset and, and stuff, but he didn't want anything to do with it and started shouting at me too. And so I walked away. Thankfully, in that moment, I was starting to feel again. I was starting to feel like, we're not liars, you're the liar. Um, and and the, the self-righteousness started coming up and I was like, no, this guy needs Jesus. We need to keep our testimony. And I was very thankful for the team of people that we had there who also um, were kind and cool and collected and were able to still remain there and share Jesus. There's a huge difference. Like, this is an ongoing thing. This isn't something that I have perfect, and it's not something that you're likely to have perfect either. Um, But that is an attitude that we need to check, that I need to repent of, and maybe you do as well. Um, Now, in the instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, it goes on to say, we're not going to dive in deep like we have to this point. But the same thing is true of both of these things. Um, How is it that I can be, or you can be, an instructor to foolish? It's only if we have the wisdom of God in our hearts. How is it that I can teach the things of God? It's only if if I have the things of God in my heart. How is it that I get those things? It's only if God is living and indwelling in me through the through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel. Verse 21, he goes on to say, You then who teach yourself, do you not, te- do you not teach yourself? You then who teach others, do not teach yourself. Um, and while you preach against stealing, do you steal? He gives um, a few examples of, from, that come directly from the Ten Commandments. Uh, there's, there's stealing, there's adultery, and there's um, idolatry. He could have listed any other three. He could have listed all of them. The point that Paul is making is every single commandment that you could list, you know that you've broken it. Um, You know that you've broken it, and so therefore you become a lawbreaker, which means you deserve God's wrath. And so if you're depending upon how good you are and how well you've obeyed God, you are in a bad spot. All right? You cannot rely upon the law for your salvation. You need Jesus. Uh, and that, that is what he's building up to. Pastor Brian keeps mentioning uh, Romans 3.10. No one does good, not even one. Uh, and that's exactly where he's building to with this argument as well. Matthew 23.2 and 3 says this. The, uh, Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, The scribe and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. All right? And so... What about you? Do, you? do you know the truth of God's word and tell others that this is what God expects, but in, in yourself, do you do them? Um, verse 23 starts to bring it home. It says, you who boast in God dishonor God by breaking the law. There's where the thing starts to crumble. You're boasting in this somehow affiliation with God, but the rest of it, the rest of your life, that's outside of Sunday morning where you're sitting here listening to God's word, you do the exact opposite of what God asks you to do. You have a, a different heart, a different attitude outside than you do here. Verse 24, and thus the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All right? So, when it, and how is it that all these good things that are talked about in here that are scriptural, we went to scripture for all of them, how, are those, how do those things become blasphemy? It's when we think that it is our own doing. When we become self-righteous and say, I'm, I am good enough myself, or I'm good enough to save other people. That is when it becomes 
uh, blasphemy. And so Paul is asking this. There's a question that I, I kind of pulled out of this text that he asked the unbelieving world, or a question that is asked by the unbelieving world, people out there who, don't, who need Jesus. Why should we believe in or honor Jesus as so-called Christians do not honor him with their lives? That's a, that's a heavy question. And, and, and do you realize that, that children, when you obey your parents, you're actually being a testimony to the unbelieving world uh, that, that this, is what, this is what being a child of God looks like? Um, when you tell the truth that you are being a testimony to the unbelieving world? There's a question also for those who are unrepentant. What heart posture is necessary to be righteous? in God's sight. This question is thoroughly answered in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. It says this, and he told this parable, and listen to this, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Right, that fits exactly with this, what Paul is saying. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Uh, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, so you've got this, this one guy who is just all about himself. God, I'm not like this other guy. I'm, I'm good. Here's all the things I've done. Boom, boom, boom. And that is, that is the exact person that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 2. Um, what, he's, what Paul is getting at is you need to be like this other guy who couldn't even lift up his face to heaven. What is the right heart posture before the Lord? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't, I don't even deserve, I don't even deserve you to notice me, let alone forgive me. There's also a question here in this text for those who are not redeemed but want to be, and how is, and that is, and it's an applied question, right? Because if if there's a a wrong way to do it, there's got to be a right way, right? The question for those who are not yet redeemed but want to be, maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I want that heart change. I'm not sure that I have it. How is it that you get there? Uh, Romans, or Revelation 3, 15 to 21 is, uh, is written to the, uh, the church at uh, Laodicea, if I remember correctly. I forgot to write it down. Um, but this, this church is very similar to the church in America, and I think very similar to... Um, maybe even Wildwood. Um, I'll, I'll read it to you and you can test and see whether or not it's something that resonates with you. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus talking to this church. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Isn't that, isn't that so much of what American Christianity tends to be about? 
We have so much, and we think that we don't need anything. And yet, here's what Jesus' counsel is. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness. Yeah, gold stands for your God's riches. This is apocalyptic, apocalyptic language here. And so God's riches are great. The white clothing is Christ's righteousness. In Revelation, it's very clear that the, the white clothing that are given to the saints are, are God's righteousness, and it covers their sin. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Only God can restore spiritual blindness. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. How is it that you have a relationship with Jesus? It's by believing in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, that he came, he died for your sins, that you deserve to die for. He was really dead and he rose again on the third day, conquered death. And now that same Jesus says he's standing at the door and knocking. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to cleanse you from your sins. He wants to give you new life in him so that you can be a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness. And that's what we want here at Wildwood Church. We want to be a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness, but we can only do that through the power of Jesus. Jesus is knocking. Will you let him in? Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that salvation is not up to us. Thank you that um, you are the light of the world. Thank you that... Uh, we don't have to walk in darkness, that we can have your light to guide our lives, that we can understand your word because, because of who you are and what you have done for us. Thank you for your finished work on the cross. God, I pray that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you or, or, or needs to recommit their lives to you, that they would do that today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I wanna encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.